Coming to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, by way of Stone Mountain, Georgia, birthed by the great state of South Carolina, is the Bryant Land Country Podcast, your place for any and everything in hunting, fishing, sports, and outdoor related, with heavy doses of randomness, guests, and an all-around good time. Here's your host, proud Gamecock, South Carolina forever, AB3. All right, now, welcome to another episode of the Bryant Land Country Podcast. I am your host, AB3. Thank you for downloading and joining us for the podcast this week. Thank you for listening, telling five people to tell five more people to listen to our podcast. We got some good news this week. I got an email from the folks over at radio.com and radio.com has picked up the Bryantland Country Podcast. So if you listen to podcast on radio.com, make sure you add the Bryantland Country Podcast in your rotation of podcasts that you listen to. So we were very excited uh, that the folks over at Radio.com finally uh, see the value of having the Bryantland Country podcast in their catalog. So we uh, we appreciate those fine folks over there. And like I said, if you listen to a podcast on Radio.com, make sure you add the Bryantland Country podcast in to your rotation and if you are already listening to our podcast and you got friends or whatever hunting buddies whoever that listen to podcasts and various audio on radio.com let them know that the Bryantland country podcast is now there and available my guest this week is patrick durkin patrick wrote the article is hunting too white for the meat eater site um it's available on uh, his website patrickdurkinoutdoors.com as well but uh, i had patrick on because i wanted to know what you know made him write an article like that where did he come up with the title um just you know so we get down and uh break down the article a bit talk about uh living and hunting a little bit in wisconsin patrick is uh from wisconsin and as you guys know i spend about six months of the year uh probably the worst time of the year up in uh wisconsin uh working and then uh doing a little bit of um hunting and uh you know a little touch of fishing um up there so patrick came on with us like i said to talk about this article i think um i've yammered on enough about uh you know what me and patrick talked about here in our conversation so why don't you guys kick back and listen to our conversation me and patrick durkin on the Brightland country podcast Pat, thanks for taking the time to join the Bryant Lamb podcast. The first question I got for you, has summer actually come to Wisconsin yet? I never make the assumption. You know, <laughs> I, um, I, <laughs> I'm 63 years old, and I, I've been in Wisconsin uh, 58 of those years. And every June, well, I think what always makes me kind of laugh is when people um, make those kind of comments. And I, and I think, God, you live in Wisconsin. What do you expect? <laughs> yes, 
But see, that's we the thing. Know. I don't live in Wisconsin, and <laughs> it's funny. Like we were talking before we started. You know, I'm usually in Milwaukee, and you know, roundabout in Wisconsin at the worst time of the year, from October yeah. all the way through till about April or so. And usually, once the season's over, I pack up and I come back down south. And everybody, you know, I work with and stuff that's from Wisconsin, born and raised, all that good stuff. They're like, "Well, you got to be here in the summer." time and because the summertime is great and i'm just like all right so a few weeks ago with the bucks run going all the way you know through may or whatnot i stayed in june and had the kids come up we went fishing on lake michigan uh we were wrapped up like it was still you know november um we went to a brewers game we were wrapped up until they closed the roof and my kids are looking at me like um where's summer because they coming from georgia where when they left before they got on the plane it was like 85 degrees and they come you know to wisconsin and it might touch 70 if you're lucky (laughs) yeah so (laughs) talk about shock (laughs) that's why i asked has it started yet so (laughs) (laughs) well it's pretty nice today so i can't complain Now, I will say that when it does get warm, it is nice because there's not like that hard humidity like it is down south. Oh, yeah. But just the thing is, is you got to enjoy those five or six days that are actually nice up there. (laughs) 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 I mean, I killed my turkey on May 1st this year, and it was rainy and cold, and it's just like, wow, it's May 1st. but. Hey, yep. you know, what can you do? <laughs> History. You got to dress for what it brings you. Exactly. 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 So, Patch, I just wanted to bring you on because you wrote a article here a couple weeks ago, uh, article titled Is Hunting Too White? And, you know, I read the article. I thought it was a great article. It hit, you know, a lot of points and stuff. But I know one of the problems I had when I posted the article and then reposted it in some groups people just Uh read headlines and then they jump off the deep end or they read the title and they jump off the deep end i've been in the media business in some form of fashion since my second semester in college so it's over 20 years most of it's in television i know Mm -hmm. that the point is to grab headlines or, or to grab eyeballs or ears or, you know, whatever your medium is. So I, I understand that you have to dig deeper than the title. A lot of people, especially nowadays, don't want to do that. My question to you is, having written that article, what kind of feedback, backlash did you get? Like any kind of hate mail? Like what was the response directly to you about it? Yep. You know, my responses that I received overall were very positive. I think most people who um, took the time to track me down and, and talk to me directly had read the article. But, you know, when you go online and read, um, like, you know, the article appeared on, on the meateater.com website. They um, have their forums, like, on um, Instagram and Facebook. And you go on there, you go on to Instagram and Facebook, and you right away you, you see the difference where um, people there are responding to the headline, they're responding to, um, maybe they read a, a few sentences from the article, but overall they did not get past the headline. And I guess, Adam, you know, my thought is I've been at this, I've been writing, you know, 
reporting since early 1980s. And I think one of the frustrations I've always known long before the days of social media was that um, a lot of people never get past the headline. That's not unique to uh, our modern ways of communication. And I, I guess the reason I'll just, I'll um, basically defend the headline is because I think that's kind of the, that idea is hunting too white. When I first got this idea for an article, I was just coming off of a, a trade show. I think it was either the, the shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show or the archery trade association's annual trade show in January. I um, was talking to someone there about the fact that when you look at um, who takes part in hunting, and for the most part, they tend to be um, people like myself who are um, middle-aged to older white guys. And in Wisconsin, I, I've seen like at gas stations, you'll see um, typically, again, middle-aged white guys wearing the blaze orange. There are um, populations in Wisconsin of Laotian refugees, you know, among people who um, are hunters, and that's part of their hunting tradition. But overall, though, you don't see too many people of color hunting around Wisconsin, and you definitely don't see them walking around trade shows, the hunting trade shows. So I guess that's why I um, started asking myself, and, and when I was talking to other guys, saying, um, you know, is hunting too white? If we're really concerned about um, hunting's future, and having a, a good, stable hunting population, we're going to have to get beyond just um, um, white folks. And that's, I think, all that motivated. It wasn't, you know, race in our country, you know better than I do, is such a sensitive topic. And I, so I guess I didn't go out of my way to um, provoke people. At least that wasn't my intention. I just I thought <laughs> it, was a, it was a question worth asking. Right. But any time, you know, and I've found out in my, you know, short lived hunting career um, and especially since doing um, media in the uh, hunting world, anytime that you bring up, you know, race or anything like that, the first two things that usually come up is A, why are you being divisive? And then B, liberal, this, that and the other yeah, as if yeah. every evil thing is liberal. And yeah, it's just an observation. Like I, I make it a point yeah. with my media stuff, podcast videos, and all that stuff, not to get you know into politics and you know and stuff like that. But being in several mm -hmm. hunting groups, anytime you bring up anything about race or why something is important because of race, that's usually the first two roads that people go down. It's like you huh. know, why are you being divisive and or liberal? Insert whatever else after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just find that disappointing because I really believe, and I sound like a, I guess I sound like a liberal wacko when I say this, but I really believe in democracies, we're supposed to have open discussions, you know, that we're supposed to be able to raise questions and sometimes make people uncomfortable and make each other uncomfortable. But I think I tried my best in this article to be respectful and just try to keep a straight focus on um, raising legitimate questions, trying to find answers in, in the data that are out there, and then in interviewing people by phone to get their thoughts on this stuff. So I guess um, the thing I try to do, Adam, keep in mind is that when I write report and write, I, I just try to take that approach and I figure there's one thing I've learned over the years is that you can't account for the things that people read into something. You know, you can write the most balanced, objective report, article, whatever it might be, and some folks will always find ulterior motives in it. And I just can't account for that. So I, I figure, well, here's my best take on my most sincere effort to be objective on this issue, but then knowing that some people are going to read things into it that really aren't there. 
Exactly. And I mean, like going through and reading, like you said, if you take the time and read the article, you know, most of it is about, you know, inclusion of everyone, like kids, you know, women, different, you know, races, people of color and stuff. And as it said in the article, you know, the uh, hunting industry, you know, outdoors and stuff, they do a great job of including kids and women. But if you just look Mm -hmm. around, if you just stop and look around, you will see that people of color, whether it be black, Asian, whatever. Uh, Latinos, the representation is just not there. I mean, that's not like yeah. a yeah. argumentative point. I mean, that's just the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was talking to Rick Dillard, who was with the uh, um, U.S. Forest Service, I've known Rick since, um, I'd say, about the mid-90s, late-90s, someplace in there. And Rick, you know, I can tell you, Adam, I go to this conference every year called the Southeast Deer Study Group Meeting. It's basically a meeting that's held in various places across the South each each February, and it it draws in the top deer researchers, the top wildlife managers across the South, and um, sometimes from other parts of the country. And I can tell you, and Rick would verify it, that Rick's one of the few people of color in the auditorium every year. And so when I started working in this article back in you know January or so, when I saw, I knew I'd probably see Rick at the February conference for the Southeast Steer Group meeting. And I was really happy that when I asked him if he'd be willing to discuss these issues with me, you know, he really, you could tell he was intrigued and looking forward to it, you know, because it's something that I think he's had in his mind a lot. And so by talking to him, I learned, you know, that some of these things that I was reading in the different uh, sociological studies about black participation and minority participation in hunting, that Rick basically embodied some of those ideas, you know, and he, he saw some of the stuff firsthand. And it was fascinating to have him tell me things like that, you know, when he goes hunting in Colorado with three of his friends and then comes back and talks about it, his other black friends ask him, wasn't he scared to be out in the woods with all those white people running around with guns? You know, I find that intriguing because it's a world I don't know. I've only right. grown up in this world of um, basically white people hunting. Never think about it. And this is kind of on the same path, but, you know, I'm a runner. I've been running for about 10, 12 years now. When I go running, I never think about my route and where it takes me. I pretty much just go. And um, the thing I, I worry about is um, traffic along the way and how much traffic there might be on, on the roads I run on. Whereas my daughter runs, when she steps out her door, she thinks about where she's going to run in terms of safety from people, not cars. You know, she plans her routes to always run through neighborhoods where she's never out, out of sight of houses. Whereas I can go on trails, I can go back on these off these beaten trails where suddenly run into people. And I started thinking about that too in terms of this article that um, what a different world we live in. You know, as a white hunter, I don't begin to know what it's like for a, a black man or a black woman to be hunting. It's just a different world that I, I'd be arrogant to think I understand it. Right. And I mean, even in my experience, you know, hunting in Wisconsin um, and then I goose hunt a lot down in Illinois and just being in the blind, you know, majority of the time, of course, I'm the only one, you know, that looks like me or whatever. But Mm -hmm. one thing I can say is for the most part, and this is just my experience only, that every time that I've gone hunting, whether it's with an outfitter, um, which majority, a lot of my hunts are outfit hunts because of my travel schedule. Mm -hmm. I can say that, you know, the experiences have been positive. Now, one could take the cynical look and say, well, if you're paying for it, of course, it's going to be positive. 
But I can also double back and say that I think I've made some genuine, you know, hunting relationships, you know, with people, um, exposing them to my brand, like what I'm trying to do. And once you just sit, it's something about sitting in a blind when it's 20 degrees outside. I mean, you got no choice, but you know start talking to people and then the walls start coming down and they're breaking down walls and stuff yeah so but to go back to what you were saying about the gentleman uh from the forestry he's absolutely right i got people all the time they're just like you go out in those woods uh by yourself or you going hunting with this white man and all this other stuff and it's just like i don't i mean of course i'm cognizant of my safety but that's just safety in general but at the end of the day Mm -hmm. we're just out there you know to have a good time and you know to try to bring something back now the last thing i will say in regards to that one thing that is kind of unsettling to me and i know a couple of other people just from conversation is when you go to whether it's a like an outdoor park or like an atv park or some kind of like hunting club or hunting outfitter and they have the word plantation in their business uh, go for it yeah it's good for you yeah you can do it have at it just don't expect me to go there yeah <laughs> it's just yeah, you, know, you know what i'm saying it's just something you know about yeah. seeing that it's just like whoa okay yeah but it's not you know for everybody so. right right yeah you know and i've um i've told the story a few times about you know in the hunting community overall where i was trying to find where i was encouraging each other to take someone hunting and introduce someone new to hunting and i think um if i'm an any example of that is I have three daughters. I took all three of them hunting and fishing a lot when they were little kids and all the way into their, um, basically to the, to the age where they can kind of start letting, letting it be known if they wanted to go or not. And hunting and fishing really only took with one of the three. And I'm guessing that's probably not unusual when you um, get amongst other people that you can introduce people to um, hunting and fishing, but not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to feel comfortable, even, even in the best circumstances. And, and the thing too is you, um, one thing I, I've really come to appreciate in hunting is when you get around people, you were saying about sitting in a blind, you know, hunting really is a, um, a test of um, how well you get along with people. You can go golfing with someone and spend half the time you're out in the golf course, not near them. You know, you're out in the rough, you're out off, the, you know, <laughs> someplace other than where they are. Where you put someone in a boat with you or you put someone in a, in a duck blind with you, you're going to find out real quickly whether or not you get along or have a good time for a couple hours or three or four hours. It's a good test of um, one-on-one skills. <laughs> so, it's, it, you know, so, so that so that way it's harder in some things. Exactly. Because, you know, like, what are you what, what are you going to do? Like, you get to, you know, we get to the meeting place for, like, coffee and stuff, and I show up, you're going to turn around and be like, <laughs> I'm not going to hunt today? Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know... <laughs> You know, from Milwaukee to like where I goose hunt at in Illinois, it's a solid 45 minute hour, you know, 10 drive, depending yeah. on what field we hunting. So and I know guys that have come up from Kentucky, Georgia, you know, you know, two, three hours away, you know, Ohio, whatever. So it's like you show up in the blind and you see me, <laughs> you're going to turn around. Well, knock yourself out because I'm yeah. going to I'm going to go hunt. And if you want to, you know, blow all that away, it, it's yeah. I'm no fool. And I mean, like I said, you know, sometimes you make genuine relationships and, you know, just talking to people and stuff. But it might be a situation it's like, you know what, I'm going to stomach it for the day, hopefully get my birds and go about yeah. my business. And that's fine, too. There's nothing written that says we all got to get along and sing <laughs> Kumbaya. But I guess the point is we all when it comes to hunting, we all have yeah. the same common goal. 
and people have different experience. So I guess just don't dismiss someone's experiences or someone's take just because you're not familiar with it or, you know, it never happened to you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I, um, I find that I think one of the great memories I have of my background in Wisconsin was I lived in Amarillo, Wisconsin for seven years, which is um, west of Oshkosh. For people who know Wisconsin's um, layout, it's basically east central Wisconsin. And the Fox River in Wisconsin runs through Amarillo. And in, in May, white bass come up that river to spawn, and it can be just a circus down at the parks, you know, where people come together on these parks and, and fish in the river for, for white bass. And what was always fun for me when I was a young father back in the 1980s, I could take my three daughters down there for a walk, you know, at the baby carriage, all that kind of stuff, and stop and visit with people who were fishing. And you met folks from um, Chicago, Gary, Indiana, and other places in that, basically along the southern edge of Lake Michigan that drove, they got up like at three in the morning to drive up to that part of Wisconsin, you know, three or four hour drive from where their homes are, and then talk to them. And you, you really realize how special fishing is for folks when they'll do that, you know, and then they'll take all those fish and go home and spend the evening cleaning fish. And, and I think, you know, so often... We all take those kind of things for granted, but at the same time, you you, um, you know, a lot of these folks, you know, that would show up in Amarillo, they were um, young black families, young, uh, I remember there was uh, some Asian folks among them. It's just fun to talk to them and find out what they do for a living. Just, and I think it's, I think it's one of those great opportunities to break down those kind of barriers and just see everybody as they are. And, you know, so I guess that's one of the things that informs my view on that. And, and I, I don't think that's Democrat or Republican. That's just, I think, human stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, taking your daughters, you know, out fishing and uh, hunting, you know, it's the same thing with me. I have my daughter and my son. My son likes to go hunting with me. I am majority bow hunt when I'm not, you know, waterfowling. And he's never been waterfowling with me, but we've, you know, turkey hunted, you know, hogs down here, deer hunt and stuff. My problem with him is I can't get him to practice enough with his bow to be to the point where, you know, I feel like he's comfortable taking a shot, but he will come with me. He'll sit in the blind, you know, he'll operate the camera. He'll, you know, film like animals and stuff coming by, you know, whatnot. Mm -hmm. My daughter wants absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah. Like yeah. nothing. It's like you know what? What are the animals doing to you? Unless I, <laughs> unless I tell her, you know, we're going, you know, after like right. coyotes or coons or whatever, right. you know, stuff that harm deer or yeah. turkeys. Then yeah. she's all for it. But like she won't go out. She won't sit in the blind. But going back to what you're saying. You know, you can introduce people to it or you can introduce someone to it, but whether or not it's going to stick or it's going to take, you know, it's up in the air. And I also find it funny that, you know, one of the quotes from your article, um, I think it was John Anoni, but I don't want to get it wrong. But, you know, it was like, you know. You don't basically paraphrasing. You don't get a cookie for taking your own kids hunting. Like you got to try to expose right. <laughs> like other people. Right. And I and I just thought that comment was pretty funny and, and true. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed talking to John during the interview I did did with him because um, he's obviously been out there, you know, pounding his head against the wall in some cases, trying to get help for his group and spread the word from his group. And it's cool to see guys like that that um, just are not discouraged. And I too loved that um, idea that. Um, you know, why would you think we should give you an award or, or why should you even pat yourself on the back for taking your kid hunting or fishing? That just should be 
a part of your um, natural deal when you, as a parent, that you involve kids in things like that and get them involved. I, I don't think that's anything extraordinary. What's extraordinary is a man seeing that, you know, if you can teach kids to hunt and fish or or do one one or the other, whatever it might be, you give them a great opportunity to, to connect with nature and you give them a great understanding where, you know, like when I have, um, I try to talk to school groups and whatever else where I get invited to talk and they'll ask questions like that to me, you know, why do you shoot something that's not harming you? And I always ask them, well, you know, when you eat a hamburger, did that cow that it came from ever harm you? No, you know, <laughs> that, that's not not part of the, you know, I just try to talk to them in terms of um, that life sustains life, that life you know, animals die in the woods. Um, predation goes on all the time. The um, rabbit never harmed the um, fox, but yet the fox ate it, you know. So really not a whole lot different. We're not that far away from the animal kingdom. And it's kind of a harsh place sometimes, but I think that is nature. Nature isn't um, always the, the kindest thing to its to its children. So, yeah, I, I just find those kind of questions, well, I look at them as great opportunities to connect with kids and um, to explain the facts of life, basically. Right, right. Because like you said, we are a part of the animal kingdom and depending on, you know, what you want to believe, we are the top predator. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just that's just how, you know, it breaks down and works. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, too, about the article, Mm -hmm. because you did a lot of like research and you had like a lot of numbers Mm -hmm. and just statistics and stuff. But you also had in there kind of a question like your survey reaching all the targets, because just like having in a conversation with just a couple of people you know we were all kind of like did the surveys you know reach or how many people did the surveys reach and stuff and then there's a lot of what we see as far as like black folks and people of color that hunt fish do it to live not necessarily post it on instagram or want to be you know don't do it for show you know and it's part of their livelihood you know farming whatever you know, they just do it because, you know, it's their tradition, it's their life, and they're not necessarily showboating about it. So I thought it was kind of interesting that you're you were also kind of reflective in like questioning, saying, hey, you know, maybe the surveys didn't reach everybody that we intended for them to reach as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like the research that Mark Duda's group did, um, the responsive management, they rely on random samples of um, basically phone interviews. And at least with um, with that kind of interview where they're calling people, getting them on the phone and, and talking to them one-on-one, asking questions and sometimes open-ended questions, it tends to be um, a little more comprehensive than this stuff, fill in the blank, punch the number type um, response that you get on some phone surveys. But yeah, it's always going to be, um, they do their best. You know, that's one thing I, I think most of the surveys I looked at were tend to be, you know, as best we can do scientifically obtained information where it's, you know, randomly conducted. It's not just uh, um, you filled in uh, one of those email surveys where it goes out to, you know, specific people or whatever it might be or a specific mailing list. You know, you've prior the term self-select, you know, where people basically decide which surveys they want to uh, take, you know. So there's nothing perfect. If, if we learn nothing more in the 2016 presidential election is that the, the best um, surveyors in the country, the best poll takers, even they can't get it right every time. You know, they design the surveys and they don't reach a certain group of people that um, basically get unreported and that throws your results off. So, yeah, I don't, I don't um, ever assume that everything, every survey I um, draw from, you know, the, the last word. You know, I think all we can do as, as communicators though is take the best information we can get, conduct 
enough phone interviews of her own to get some different perspectives and then share them with people. And I like to think that over time, the truth does win out. You know, I we might get it wrong some days and we might be incomplete other days. But over time, if you keep plugging away at these things, I really do believe that um, you get to a point where you have some kind of consensus, some kind of um, bottom line that you feel comfortable sharing with people. Exactly. And that brings me to my next question. Just like in your opinion, you know, the spin it forward or to move forward, you know, like what are some of the things that you think that need to happen or like some of the things that you would like to see happen to improve, you know, the participation and the inclusion? Yeah, I I um, ask, I think that really the crucial question is what can be done about it? And, you know, you see um, different organizations trying to get into the, the inner city areas and reach more um, black kids and, and Hispanic kids, whatever it might be. And then the big challenge, Adam, comes then, okay, let's see, you introduce uh, a bunch of these kids to, to um, archery or um, get them out bow hunting once or twice. Anyone living in a city, whether they live downtown or out on the edge of a big city, boy, the more you're in that city, the harder it is to get out of there and find areas to hunt that are convenient. You got to travel farther and, and, it's, and it's just a real challenge to keep people connected. And yeah, I'd look at that and you think, God, just the actual demographics of this, I mean, not demographics, but the logistics of it become very difficult. And so that's where I know in my own life, I've um, lived in small rural towns all my adult life where it's not hard to get out and go hunting or fishing. But for me to compare the ease of hunting and fishing with a young man or young woman deals with in a city, I think, God, it's a whole different world. And so all I can hope, though, is that um, by having more programs like what John Anoni is doing, and I know the Archery Trade Association, they have um, like a learn to learn to bow hunt curriculum that takes, you know, it takes some um, many sessions to get kids into it. And then, you know, you can't just do it in one afternoon or one week. And it's got to be something that's repetitive and, and get adults involved where they can provide that transportation outside the city to find these areas to hunt. But you know, hunting and fishing inherently are difficult things to get into compared to other activities that are more, more convenient for people. So I think we're always going to have these challenges, especially as America becomes much more of a urban, you know, urban-based society. So that, that's going to be a tough one. And where you, um, where I think one of the big eye-openers for me was seeing the, these data that um, I dug up. Um, we went from 100 years ago where 80% of black people lived in, in rural areas to the current days where 80% of black people live in urban areas. That's a huge shift in, in where people live and what their interests right. might be. So, you know, I, I wish I had some magic wand here that could make everybody... Um, you know, have more opportunities. And I think all we can do, though, is keep plugging away at it as best we can, support groups like um, John Anonis and, and others, and, and keep trying to get this stuff out there. Because I think eventually, as more people become exposed, it's hard to, as you know, it's hard to engineer social change. And social change tends to happen um, on its own without a right. real gui- guiding hand. You know, it's more of a gradual thing, typically, as we adapt and change in our lives. So I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but that's I just think it's going to be a, a struggle, but I don't want it to end with, um, I don't like it to start and end like our conversation, I think, just now was indicative of one of the challenges is that as soon as you start talking about some people want to shut it down, and that's not going to be helpful. Right, right. There are things that are universal to every one of us who 
goes hunting and fishing and stuff. And I mean, that's access. You know, like mm-hmm. you said, access to lakes, you know, access to ponds, you know, forest land, woods, fields, things of that nature. So, I mean, just to me, I think access is the biggest thing. But as long as you continue to expose and if you can find ways to uh, to expose, you know, these kids to the lifestyle and to you know hunting and fishing i think that's where where we got a shot you know it's kind of it's a numbers game i know like i said with my own kids i'm big on exposure it's just like Mm -hmm. you don't have to do it you don't Mm -hmm. you don't have to fall in love with it but here it is and i think you know if you can continue to expose people to hunting and fishing you know eventually you know you're going to get enough that it's going to stick on and uh Mm -hmm. and continue to go to go for yeah. Well, you know, I, I use myself as an example. There, When I grew up in the 1960s, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and I, I could walk down to uh, the nearest lake to me was Lake Mendota. It's about a, um, a mile of walk. I could put a rubber raft. I bought one of those two-man rubber rafts, Navy rubber rafts, when I was like me, 13 years old, and would hike down to the lake with that in a little backpack with my bait and go out fishing um, right there. But um, then I looked around my family. I came from a family of six kids. And not one of my siblings to this day really fishes on their own. But why it took the way it did with me, I don't know how to. Um, I don't know how to explain that. You know, just it just did. I grew up with that interest. Um, my dad introduced all of us to hunting and fishing, but he wasn't a real big hunter fisherman himself. Just something that he grew up doing with his siblings. And then, um, boy, me one small exposure to it, and the spark with you know the spark turned into a flame that to this day. <laughs> Basically, it's still burning, you know, so. <laughs> yep, you, you, predict, you got bit by the bug. You predict those things. Yeah, I got bit by the bug, and, and I, I never have grown weary of it. Now, I saw a couple of pictures. Now, do you bow hunt primarily, or what, what's your favorite form of hunting? I like hunting. I um, I love bow hunting, but I also love gun hunting. I the only thing I have a hunting with that's really common for some people is handguns. I just I have a handgun, but I just never have gotten good with it. Whereas bow hunting, archery, I've always loved. I think I learned how to shoot a bow when I was about ten years old, and so I know I killed my first couple deer with a bow and arrow. And as time went on, I I got into gun hunting too. But I've I've never um. I can't really say any form of hunting is my favorite. I, I just tend to enjoy whatever whatever I, I, I do. So it's there, and I, like, I, I'm lucky, too, where I can walk out my, in my backyard during the lunch hour and, and shoot arrows here in the little town I live in. So nice. those kind of things make a difference to it and what sustains us. Definitely. Now, tell me this, because I had a guy one time tell me, and I thought it was, I thought it was pretty funny. We were going back and forth because I didn't understand the turkey season at first in wisconsin you know you have like your periods uh-huh. like your weeks and stuff and it didn't make sense right. to me you know at first um and i was telling him you know how like in georgia and south carolina turkey season starts turkey season ends same thing mm-hmm. you know regardless whether it's archery or shotgun or whatever deer season you know for archery it starts and then it goes all the way and then there's a period for you know muzzle loader and rifle and all that other stuff but what he was telling mm-hmm. me he was like well they should do you know deer season like how they do the periods for turkey season in wisconsin he said because that first weekend is like it sounds like a freaking war in the woods it was like because the <laughs> orange army takes yeah. over is right. that true right. or not right you know it is definitely true wisconsin you know we've had the nine-day gun season my entire life i started hunting deer in 1971 but i think our nine-day deer season in wisconsin i think that kind of has has its roots somewhere in the mid to early 1950s and what i always find interesting about hunting 
in fishing, but hunting especially, is that once a state imposes a, um, a structure on, on its hunting seasons, those who grew up grew up with, as their system, they tend to think that came down from the Bible itself. <laughs> that it's always been that way, you know. <laughs> and they hate changing right. it. Right. <laughs> yes. It's, and so, like, yeah, our turkey season in Wisconsin, we didn't have modern turkey hunting I think it was an interesting um, perspective for me is I entered the Navy in 1975 and Wisconsin had no turkeys in the state at that time, no wild turkeys, except maybe some fringe areas where maybe they had gotten introduced over in Michigan maybe. But um, for the most part, we were turkey-free when I left the Navy in 1975. Well, I returned in 1980, five years later, and a couple years later, I I was deer hunting back in an area where I always deer hunted in my pre-Navy days, and a whole flock of turkeys went walking by. Well, here, I didn't realize at that time, but um, the state had been stocking turkeys from Missouri in the meantime. And so when we started our turkey season, basically from scratch um, in 1983, um, Wisconsin set up what I think is a novel way of doing it to disperse the hunting pressure and spread it out you know, so more people could take part and not be um, pressured and not have a lot of um, opening weekend pressure, that kind of thing, was they set up the system of um, a six-week season that's broken up into six one-week time periods. And and actually, in the very early days, the season was a five-day season with a two-day break and then another five-day season, another five-day period. And then they always had these two-day breaks in between, and you could only hunt till noon. But it was funny when we started looking in the 1990s about making the hunting, turkey hunting day go from instead of having a noon closure to an, an evening closure, well, we fought that. We got in a big fight about that. <laughs> Eventually, they, they loosened the regulations, though, and first they tried to... Uh, um, okay, instead of hunting till noon, we'll, we'll only hunt till 5 p.m. Well, then they got used to that, and then um, eventually they realized, well, if we're hunting till 5 p.m., why not, why not just keep it open till till dark? So then we finally went to that, and now everyone's gotten used to it, and this is our new norm, and we're all happy with it now. But yeah, you know, as you know, Wisconsin too, we always had that nine-day gun season that opens always the weekend before Thanksgiving, <laughs> and. Every time we try to tamper with that, you'd think we're just basically taking away someone's birthright. You know, just people fight about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny how in Michigan they used to. Well, the Michigan, in contrast, Michigan opens their deer season on November fifteenth every year, no matter what day of week it starts on, and that's their tradition, and they fight to maintain that. Yeah, and now you got you know I got a couple buddies that hunt in Pennsylvania, and they're fighting for Sunday hunting, which I you know yeah. I, don't, I don't you know yeah. you know stomp on anybody's religion or beliefs, but I I do find it very interesting that in 2019 uh, they're up there fighting about whether or not they can hunt on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember um, when I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, in my Navy days. That's the first time I came across what they call these blue laws, where you can't do certain things on Sundays. <laughs> the you blue can laws. fish on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up <laughs> with the blue laws in South Carolina. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always found it interesting. You could fish on Sundays, but you could not hunt on Sundays. And when I tried talking to locals about that, they just thought that was, well, that's normal you know they were surprised to hear that wisconsin that we could hunt on sundays so again it's um you know what, what we grew up with and get used to and then we just think that's the way it should be right right well pat i really appreciate you taking the time to come on and break down this article um like i said i read it um read it a couple times because it you know i my reading comprehension as i get a little bit older is, you know it's deteriorating so i was just like i have to go back and read stuff a couple of times like wait a minute did he 
okay, yeah, that's what that was what I thought it was. So <laughs> I've read over it a few times, but it was a great article, very timely article, and um, hopefully, you know, it'll open some eyes and uh, make some way. Well, it's already definitely made some waves yeah. in the hunting industry. So, like I said, I, I yeah. really appreciate it. Let uh, folks know where they can find you and where they can find your work. Yeah, I have a website called Patrick Durkin Outdoors, all one word, dot com, PatrickDurkinOutdoors.com. And also if they follow the MeatEater.com, I post a new article on the Meat Eater uh, website every two weeks. And those tend to be what I think are my most um, in-depth, comprehensive articles. And I, I write, write those for Meat Eater. And also, I also write a, a weekly newspaper column here in Wisconsin that I've been doing since 1984. So my website carries those columns, too. So I, I try to post all the stuff I write on my own website. So if folks want to go there, I'd really appreciate it. You know, I hope it was refreshing for you guys to listen to that conversation as it was refreshing for me to just have that conversation, you know, just a genuine, genuine, excuse me, conversation about, you know, things that can be a little bit touchy sometimes when you talk about them, you know, but uh, especially when you're talking about race, you know, I know sometimes that can, uh, that can be a little touchy for some folks. But like I said, I hope you guys uh, found that conversation refreshing like I did, maybe learned a couple of things. I mean, because at the end of the day, all we want to do is preserve you know our heritage our rights you know our ability to be able to go out and uh, hunt fish and enjoy the outdoors you know and we got to get you know more folks involved we got to diversify this thing a little bit include you know other folks so you know this thing can keep on chugging along for uh generations to come so uh like i said enjoy talking to uh patrick durkin uh, a couple things before I buzz on uh, out of here. Uh, Patreon. Um, by the time this podcast drops, we will have a Patreon site. You'll be able to click the link in the uh, details or notes, however it's listed on your podcast provider where you listen to your podcast on. But the details or the notes section will have a link to Patreon. If you guys aren't familiar with Patreon, it's a place where you can go, you know, make a donation. We got some goodies there that are exclusive to uh, Patreon members, people that uh, decide to support the podcast. So go check out our Patreon, make a donation. Like I said, take advantage of the extras that we're going to have on Patreon. All right. I'm going to go ahead and get ready to get out of here. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Bryantland Country Podcast. Thank you to Radio.com for picking us up. We're going to come back next week with another episode of the Bryantland Country Podcast. Just make sure you're telling five people to tell five people to listen, download, rate, and subscribe. Yes, all of that. It helps us out, folks, and we certainly, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, I'll hit you guys next week. Uh, you guys take care, and we'll see you next week on another episode of the Bryantland Country Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Bryant Land Country Podcast, hosted by AB3. Please leave us a positive review and five-star rating on iTunes. Be sure to check out our podcast section on our website, bryantlandcountry.com, for previous podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Official Bryant Land and Twitter at 3 Land. This has been an AB3 Media Production. Join us next time for another edition of the Bryant Land Country Podcast.